0: You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network. Featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California. Presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is Served.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Justice is Served. This is the show where we give you all of the latest in legal news. I am joined by my lovely co host, Rawa Gebret Aub. Hello. And also, famed attorney Carl Douglas is joining us in studio. Hello, Carl.
2: Hi, Mara. Thanks for having me on.
1: Thank you for being here. I am honestly so. Excited to discuss your storied career. You have represented everyone from Michael Jackson, Queen Latifah, Jamie Foxx, Elgin Baylor, who we will be talking about, uh, and OJ Simpson, who we will definitely be talking about. So, uh, Donald Sterling, he has been in the news a lot lately, especially in Los Angeles, but nationally, he has been in the news. And this is someone that you have come to interact with. A lot because you were the person, like I said, who represented Elgin Baylor, the Clippers executive, in an age and race discrimination suit against Donald Sterling in 2009. Tell me about Donald.
2: Sure. Well, we had a chance during the course of our representation to have Donald Sterling sitting not much further away from me than you are in a room in my office two sessions, probably a total of eight or nine hours. He was confronted then with allegations dating back 20, 30 years of racial insensitivity, misconduct, much of like what you've heard on the audio tapes. And it's interesting, Mari, because he spewed the same venom and the same defiance that you are now hearing on these latest tapes that have been released
1: so that, that's why a lot of people were shocked when they heard this audio recording. When you heard it, were you surprised?
2: No, I got, a, I got a lump in my throat. I got a pit in my stomach because once I heard those words the first time, it brought it all back. It was therefore stunning when the first statement was released talking about, we're not sure if those tapes were authentic Or his wife, Shelley, saying, I'm not sure if that was his voice. I did not have to be married to him for 50 years or work with him to know that was Donald Sterling's voice on those tapes. And I was not a bit surprised about the venom that he spewed then.
3: Carl, uh, so you represented... Mr. Elgin Baylor, I did. Basketball Hall of Famer, um, and, and the, the matters at issue were age and race discrimination. It was. And, and I'm wondering if you felt some sense of vindication almost when this recent news came out about Mr. Sterling.
2: Rowan, I really did because in California, as you know, mm-hmm. there's a law that limits the scope of evidence mm-hmm. that you can introduce in a trial and it limited to two years before the lawsuit. So we had allegations of racism dating back to the mid-'80s, but we didn't have anything that was two years or sooner. So in trial, right before we picked a jury, we made a tactical decision to dismiss our race claim and proceed on the age claim instead. Mm-hmm. So it is really nice because when I was confronting Donald Sterling in his deposition he was defiant and angry when he denied any sort of racism. He had once a co- a coffee stirrer in his mouth and I distinctly remember him flipping it out across the room at me in disgust oh, no. when I would make some of the allegations against him. So now he can't deny it and We say in my community, God don't like ugly. Mm -hmm. And everything comes home to roost. And now we're seeing really all that we knew years before.
1: Well, some of those allegations were, when I was reading these, I was shocked talking about how he wanted to run a plantation-style basketball team.
2: He would talk to Elgin Baylor about his perfect concept was Black kids being coached by a white southern coach. It's sort of like the massa looking over his cotton farm oh, and on. seeing all of the slaves that were there. That's why it's so ironic, Mari. Now that he suggests, how could he possibly be racist when he works in an in, in an industry that's almost eighty percent black? That's mm-hmm. like saying, how could the you know the 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 houseman, the plantation owner, be a racist? when he hires all of these slaves to pick his cotton, it really shows how far out of touch Donald Sterling is. He's 80 years old, and he's a real 80 years old. And he has been so accustomed to running his team. Um, He's a bully. He's a tyrant. Everyone there is afraid of him. He rants and raves. He is really just the the worst that you would think of a rich, old, stodgy old man. That's Donald Sterling.
3: To date, and to my knowledge, uh, Mr. Sterling has not expressed any remorse for uh, his his words for the recordings that leaked. I, I Doubt that he will, um, how do you think uh moving forward this fight between uh, the NBA and Donald Sterling regarding the ownership of the clippers is going to play out because news is circulating that he has he's looking for some powerhouse uh, litigators here in Los Angeles to help represent him uh, and it looks like he's not going to uh, give up without a fight. What do you think?
2: I have a different take, Rawa, mm-hmm. on all of this. you got to remember. Donald Sterling is a trial lawyer Mm -hmm. at his very essence. He began accumulating his riches by being a personal injury lawyer. I'm a personal injury lawyer, so I can scheme and strategize and think like he. He currently has a commodity, a Clipper team, that is losing value. Sponsors are leaving. There are... Concerns about players and coaches not being able to play for him next year. So the value of his commodity is weakening. If he were to come across now anxious, submissive, and willing to sell, the buyers there might be willing to think that he will sell at a discount. Mm -hmm. He has a depressed commodity. However, if he puts up a fight if he hires his minions and acts like he's going to fight until the very end, then someone is going to come and overpay him for the value because they will think rather than go through a two- or three-year legal struggle, I will make him an offer that he will not be able to refuse. I think he and his wife are working together with her acting as the white knight Mm -hmm. going to save the community from Donald Sterling. If you remember the first night after the tapes came out they went to a very public dinner where they knew the paparazzi would be and she was defending him then saying he is not a racist so what I think is this is all a master plan Mm -hmm. by them to prop up the value of their franchise, their commodity, so that the world will think he's going to fight. And then someone like Magic Johnson or David Geffen, with the backing of the Guggenheim Fund. Or Oprah. Or (laughs) Oprah getting together, are going to overpay Donald Sterling coming to the rescue for Los Angeles. And he will then ride away into the sunset, a disgraced, but even more wealthy man.
3: So you think it's financial, and th- that there's not really much ego necessarily involved.
2: It, there is ego involved. Mm-hmm. He sits at courtside. Mm-hmm. He sits at half court. You or never he used to. You never. You never saw him in his seat when the national anthem was played. I was a season ticket holder for ten years. Mm-hmm. He would come in three, four, five minutes after the game started. And he and his entourage would saunter in Mm -hmm. behind the first row and then take their seats at courtside for everyone to see. Mm -hmm. You don't see that with the owner of the Heat. You don't see, you didn't see that with the owner of the Lakers even. Okay? This is a man of a tremendously high ego. He hates this um, position he finds himself in now. So I think ultimately he's going to sell But before doing so, he is shrewdly trying to give the appearance that he's going to fight. I'm a trial lawyer, and if I told my opposition I want to settle offhand, they'd pay me less. Mm -hmm. But if I say I'm going to fight and I act like I'm going to fight right before the trial starts, I'll get the best offer to settle my case. That's what's going on here, I think.
1: What do you think of V. Stiviano and allegations that the timing of the release of the tape, which she claims Donald Sterling well knew he was being recorded, that the timing of the release of this tape is very coincidental because it comes shortly after Shelley sued V. Stiviano to get back community property, property that Donald Sterling had given her.
2: Regrettably and probably from the beginning of time until the end of time, there will be those that are seeking their 15 minutes of fame. Mm. This, she feels, is her time. I remember right after the tapes were released, she first went out of her house with the the face mask look, Mm. and she drove away. Then she came and did it a second time, twice in a day, and the face mask look. Then she walked her dog with the face mask knowing that the paparazzi were there. Then, peculiarly, she took a a skate on skates and began skating in front of her house. (laughs) She did that to prime the public for the major unveiling with Barbara Walters. (laughs) She She wanted to prime the public to see what does she look like. She is now enjoying her minutes of fame It is unfortunate that he made it easy for her to do that. I think he has a lot of recordings and conversations taped. He didn't have a very good memory when I was asking him questions in 2010. He probably has a worse memory now because of the drugs Mm -hmm. that he takes for his cancer condition. Mm-hmm. He's a very suspicious, distrustful man. Rich people often are that way. So I would suspect this is something that he was aware of. He hasn't said, I didn't know I was being taped. The second. But if he tape, knew
1: he was being taped, why would he ever say those horrendous because things? Because
2: those are what he thinks. He, from his position, Mari. You grew up in an age of enlightenment. He grew up in a different era. When I would accuse him of being a racist, it was inconceivable. He said, Elgin Baylor is like family. I hired Elgin Baylor in 1983 when there were no other African-American general managers. He will say, I continued to keep him in my employment even though he was a terrible GM and we had losing teams. He would say, I kept employing him even though the president of my corporation, Andy Roser, had given me countless memos suggesting that I should fire Elgin, and I would say no. He would talk about, there was no one in the Clippers I ever paid more than Elgin Baylor. And that's true. Mm-hmm. So for him, he thinks that he's not racist. It was stunning on these latest tapes that he could not understand why Magic Johnson, of all people, could take the position that he took. I'll tell you, Magic would win if he ran for mayor of Los Angeles yesterday. Mm-hmm. There is probably no, there is no figure in Los Angeles more beloved than Magic Johnson. And so for him to attack Magic Johnson is a sin that cannot be repaired. Mm -hmm. And he could not understand how Magic could be offended and not give him a call to ask for an explanation. That's how out of touch This 80-year-old rich man who surrounds himself with sycophants really is. No one will pull the veil of reality toward him because they're all afraid of Donald Sterling. He's a tyrant. Believe me, he's a tyrant.
1: And now you mentioned that you think that Donald Sterling and his wife Shelley are kind of banding together and creating a united front to drive up the price of the Clippers. What about, um, you know, could he pull a McCourt move with the Dodgers and get a divorce from his wife, thus putting the team under the jurisdiction of family court, tying it up for all these years and prolonging this sale?
2: He Whatever he does, I suggest, is a conscious, tactical plan to enhance the value of the team before he sells. Mm-hmm. He has been with this woman for 50 years. He's not going to divorce her now. He and she are co-owners in more than 5,000 apartment units around Los Angeles. And we're not talking about East L.A. or Pacoima. Mm -hmm. We're talking about West Los Angeles. We're talking about Beverly Hills. He is probably the largest landowner in Beverly Hills. His wife is the co-owner of all of that. He's not going to risk all of that for the Clippers. Mm -hmm. He's going to make a fuss. He's going to have her put up a fight and then someone is going to buy the team. They're going to do like the Dodgers have done and have a new network deal, put the Clippers on a special station like the Lakers are, mm-hmm. and make a mint that way. That's how they're going to finance the overpayment of the Clippers.
3: So you don't think that uh, that selling or keeping the team within the family is uh, a high priority? Everything is literally about selling Uh, at the highest price.
2: I think, Rawa, there are only 29 other men in America who are in Donald Sterling's position. Mm -hmm. Rich, white men, except for Michael Jordan. He's a majority owner. Mm -hmm. Everyone else are rich, white men. There's a parallel universe, my dear, that you nor I know anything about. Mm -hmm. Deals are made. Things are struck. On a parallel universe that we know nothing about, those rich guys are not going to let this fool bring them down. Mm-hmm. This is the height of excitement for the NBA right now. They've just finished a first round of playoffs beyond any other in the history that was of the was league. It? It, was <laughs> oh, it was incredible. It was incredible. These 29 men are not going to let this distraction take away from their commodity Mm -hmm. for too long. They're going to get into a room with Donald, smoke their cigars, drink their bourbon or their 20-year-old sherry, Mm -hmm. and work it out and make it happen in due time.
1: Mm -hmm. I see. Well, I want to switch gears here to... Another case, a very controversial case that rocked the headlines, again, not only in Los Angeles, but nationally, 20 years ago. This is the O.J. Simpson trial, the trial that put court TV, legal news, everything on the map, a televised trial of the century. You represented O.J. Simpson. I did. I am going to ask you, do you believe that O.J. Simpson is innocent or do you believe that he was guilty.
2: That's interesting, Mari, that you asked that question, particularly now coming on the 20-year anniversary of the deaths. Next year will be the 20th anniversary of the trial Mm -hmm. for nine months. And I'll tell you, I've been a lawyer for 34 years. I worked 16 months on one particular case, that case. I have represented murderers in my life countless murderers and a couple of things I'll go to my grave believing one I will go to my grave believing that the prosecution did not prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt and in America that's all that matters and two I will go to my grave believing that members of the Los Angeles Police Department fabricated evidence against O.J. Simpson in a conscious, sinister design to convict someone whom they thought was guilty. And I say to your listeners, in America, if the police are able to lie and cheat against O.J. Simpson and get away with it, then none of us are safe.
1: That was 20 years ago, though. So 20 years ago, the L.A. Police Department was able to lie and cheat. Do you think we are in the same predicament today? Do you think we have made any advances?
2: I've been a criminal lawyer for 34 years. As a civil rights lawyer, I was put on this earth to represent people of conscience who have been mistreated by police officers. Mari, I dare say in Los Angeles, you could stop any African-American at random on the streets and either he or his family or his friends will know someone that has been treated unfairly by the police department. Anyone black at random on the street. Now you go to West LA You go to Northridge and talk with some people there and you won't have that same response. But you go to South Los Angeles, where I was raised, on 109th and Dinker. You go to Dorsey High School, where I went to high school, on King and La Brea, and you stop any brother or sister on the street there and they will tell you the times have not changed even today even though we can have an African American president, there is still racism alive and well, and officers, even today, I suggest will lie to try to convict someone whom they think is guilty uh,
3: I do have some questions about your former client's decisions post post trial um he Miss Simpson came out with a book in 2006 which was actually shelved and never came out but a few copies leaked entitled If I Did It. And you know, if he had I guess presumably I guess if he had I committed didn't the murders, do it but if I did if do I did, it
1: this is how I would have done it.
3: Correct. Correct. And then and then of course there is the uh there was I think it was in 2007 when he was uh convicted of, of breaking into a hotel room in Las in Las Vegas for um Trying to steal back his own sports memorabilia, sure. uh, and now he's uh, he's in jail and will continue to be there for a very long time. What are your thoughts on his decisions um, post trial, and and why do you think he's he's gone the route he has?
2: Well, let me first talk about the last thing you mentioned, the Las Vegas case. Mm-hmm. I call that the fifth quarter from the trial that I was in. Let me explain.
3: A lot of people do. <laughs>
2: I went to school at Washington High School. It's now called Washington Prep. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have the greatest football team. And, but there was an unspoken understanding that if we lost the game in the fourth quarter, we were going to win in the fifth quarter. That was the, the rumble after the game. We call it the fifth quarter. Mm-hmm. The O.J. Simpson prosecution in Las Vegas was the fifth quarter. Of the O.J. Simpson trial. The judge there kept that jury out until 11 o'clock on a Friday night to have a verdict returned. The verdict was returned, by coincidence, I think not, on the same day, October the 3rd, that we received a verdict in the O.J. Simpson criminal trial. 11 o'clock on a Friday night, she held that jury out so that there could be some some semblance of her sense of of moral and social justice. Mm -hmm. The sentence she imposed, 33 years, was identical to the $33 million civil verdict against O.J. Simpson. That was a case where a man with no prior record was at worst accused of trying to take back his own uh, property. Dripping wet, that would have been a two-year case. Every single person who was prosecuted, the men with the guns are on probation now. Yet O.J. Simpson must spend three, maybe four more years in jail. Mm-hmm. That is an abomination for all fair-minded people who want justice for everybody, not just O.J. Simpson. Mm-hmm. Now, indeed, he has made some difficult and, and unfortunate choices I'm not a psychologist, but if I hadn't been a lawyer, I probably would have wanted to be one. Mm-hmm. And you've got to understand who O.J. Simpson was to appreciate what happened. He was the first person of color, really, as an athlete, who became universally accepted in the white world. Michael Jordan should thank O.J. Simpson every day he cashes one of his corporate checks because O.J. Simpson made the black athlete universal. The blanding of O.J. Simpson allowed white corporations everywhere to look at the black athlete Mm -hmm. as a potential corporate model. So it's ironic because O.J. didn't have much connection with the African-American community. Mm -hmm. Um, The celebrations, the the stark contrast on verdict day that you saw between white audiences and black audiences wasn't really celebrating O.J. Simpson per se. They were celebrating that African-American lawyers performed admirably. They were it, brother, that competence comes in all colors mm-hmm. and is not just limited to one color. I would have conversations very frequently with my co-counsel, Peter Neufeld, a tremendously great lawyer from Brooklyn, New York, about he always spoke ill of lawyers who would go on television. And I would say, well, Peter, for you, this is just another case. But for an African-American lawyer Mm -hmm. who doesn't get on television too often, this is a big deal for brothers looking for a role model in the streets of Los Angeles or Brooklyn or Miami or Chicago. Mm -hmm. So it's a different, really, idea. Um, But yes, to answer your question, O.J. did make some bad choices. But it was because he wanted to come back and regain the admiration and the acceptance in the white corporate community that he lost after the trial.
3: To piggyback off your point about the, the trial being televised and, and lawyers appearing in front of the cameras, um, how did the trial being televised affect not only how the case was presented um, by your team, but also how did it affect the trajectory of your career, oh, if at all? my
2: goodness. Mm-hmm. Many ways. I, I hearken back because... In Los Angeles, the trial was on every local station from 10 until noon, mm-hmm. and then from 1.30 until 4.30. It was on every radio local program those same times. And initially, because I was working, I wasn't aware of that. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember one day walking through the mall Fox Hills, mall Fox Hills mall on a Sunday with my son who was four then mm-hmm. and people were coming up to us and me recognizing me. I remember going to Phillips barbecue mm-hmm. in Lemert park and Phillips is right next to a liquor store. And there was, I was walking with my barbecue ribs mm-hmm. and a guy on the ground drinking some wine looked up and said, hey, you're that lawyer. Hmm. That's when I knew it was a new, different construct. Mm -hmm. Because of the O.J. Simpson trial, I was able to open my own practice. There was a certain presumption when I would stand up in court afterwards and say, Carl Douglas from the law offices of Johnny L. Cochran Everyone would stop and listen. Mm -hmm. Lawyers in the courtroom would stop and listen. When I told someone, I'll go to trial, they believed me. Mm -hmm. When I said I can handle any kind of case, I could talk that trash and have resonance because I'd done that. So I certainly owe my launching of my legal career on the O.J. Simpson case. I've done some things since then. I was involved in 1999 in a products liability trial against General Motors Mm -hmm. where the jury returned a verdict of $4.9 billion, with a B. Because of my connection with O.J. Simpson, the lawyers on that team brought me on to represent the black woman who was driving that car. So certainly I owe it all to the work of those Eight of the lawyers, not mm-hmm. just me. I, I worked for Johnny Cochran then. Mm-hmm. I was the manager in his office. One of eight, but certainly the trajectory of my career arced tremendously high mm-hmm. after that experience, both professionally and personally. I could do anything.
3: Mm-hmm. I don't want to monopolize and ask too many mm-hmm. questions, but just, again, going, piggybacking off your sure. answer, uh, how was it working for the late, great uh, Johnny Cochran, and, and what is your fondest memory?
2: Um, I have a portion of my office to this day Mm -hmm. as a shrine to Johnny Cochran. Other than my mother, there is no other person who has had a greater influence in my life than Johnny Cochran. I was blessed to work with him for 12 years. Mm -hmm. Um, He was... For your listeners, as great as he became nationwide after O.J. Simpson, he was every bit that great and more in Los Angeles before O.J. Oh, yes. Simpson. Mm-hmm. When I was a young federal public defender in Los Angeles, there was only one place that I wanted to go after leaving that job, and that was to work for Johnny Conkren. Uh, He called me son, and he still holds a special place in my heart. You'll make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: I want to ask about one of the most memorable moments of the O.J. Simpson trial and one of Johnny Cochran's famous lines. Sure. Tell me about the glove.
2: Two stories about the glove. Chris Darden, who was the prosecutor there um, before the OJ trial, was a fan of our office. Mm. He worked in a unit in the district attorney's office that would investigate police misconduct against citizens. So basically, he would investigate the criminal component of civil cases that we would handle in Johnny's office, suing the police. Now, Chris would never find reasons to charge the police, Mm -hmm. but at least we had a certain relationship. We knew each other because of our similarity. He was brought on to the case only after a predominantly black jury was picked in November. Trial started in January, and he was there for the first time on uh, the first day of trial. So his presence there was clearly a function of race even for the prosecution, and he wanted to be the next Johnny Cochran, but he couldn't. He couldn't wear Johnny's shoes, so he always tried to one up Johnny, and he wanted to have O.J. try on this glove, and we wanted to have a chance before doing that to have an experiment, because Bob Shapiro. At one break, I remember when there was this glove expert in testifying, Bob Shapiro put his hand in the glove and it could barely fit. And then he told came back to the council and told Johnny, hey, fuck it. And Johnny went there, put his hand on the glove, it could barely fit. We knew OJ has humongously large hands. He's six foot four. A hunk of a man mm-hmm. with really large hands. And we knew if that glove could barely fit. Bob Shapiro's hands, and Johnny's hand, And I remember they did a comparison of hands <laughs> in the courtroom Definitely at a break. Wasn't about to fit it <laughs> wasn't good for the OJ's hand. So we wanted a break at lunchtime to have the gloves and OJ and a guard there to check it out. Before doing that, Chris Darden tried to one-up us by having the glove demonstration take place before we could do our own private experiment. Mm-hmm. So I remember Johnny coming back from sidebar and saying, okay, guys, he's going to have us turn on the glove, try on the glove. Now, there's a camera in the corner of the courtroom that looks down. I remember I'm sitting next to the podium in the middle of, of the council table, and OJ is two seats over. I think Johnny's next to me, and OJ's next to Johnny, and Shapiro's on the end. And the first rule of a trial lawyer, Mara, is to never let them see you sweat. So they brought the glove over. Because there was blood on it, you had to put latex gloves for the bio- biomedical kind of problems and, and, and AIDS and that kind of thing. So first, O.J. put on a latex glove. And he started to put the glove on. and we And no one knew... What was going to happen? It was the most dramatic two minutes Mm -hmm. of my life. You could hear a pin drop, and the courtroom was filled to the gills. And as he began putting it on, it clearly didn't fit. And then O.J. went into actor mode and stood up. (laughs) He stood up and showed the jury... And Johnny said, can he walk over here, John? Can he walk over there? And then he's now in, he's, well, you know, <laughs> all of that. Um, it was, the, we, have a, we have a rule. Mari, you know, and, and Rawa. I'm sure you know, the first rule of cross examination is never ask a question mm-hmm. that you don't know the answer to. That's the first rule walking in the door as a 1L. Mm-hmm. First year of law school. Well, Ten times more important, you never do a demonstration that you don't know how it is going to take place. Mm -hmm. That next weekend, every Saturday, we met in our conference room, all the lawyers, all the investigators, and we would review the last week's work and what's coming up the next week. It was like grad school for lawyers, Bob Shapiro, Jerry Ullman. Alan Dershowitz, F. Lee Bailey, Johnny Cochran, some of the greatest minds together in a room. Mm-hmm. I was the second youngest in the room. Sean Chapman, who was Lindsey Lohan's lawyer, was the youngest. And it was like grad school for us. Jerry Ullman, who was the dean of Santa Clara's Law School, was by speakerphone. Mm-hmm. 20 people crammed into a room eating Chinese food. And Jerry said on the speakerphone, hey, guys, I got it. I got it. I got it. He said, if it doesn't fit, it must acquit. And we thought about it for a second. And being the trial lawyers that we all are, we knew that would be the line that would resonate. Because jurors are not scientists. And no one understood the DNA evidence, but the jurors could see that the murder glove didn't fit the accused murderer. And so we all knew that was going to win the day. And there were high fives mm-hmm. and and yelps and all kinds of celebrations in that room. That was the line of the trial. And we were in June and the closing was in October. October. This happened in June, but we all know I was a line for the case. Mm
1: -hmm. Finally, if that was the moment that the trial was won, then what was the moment in the O.J. Simpson trial that you were most concerned about as his defense attorney?
2: Uh, I didn't have blood in my car. The DNA was clearly the most troubling piece of evidence Now, DNA is accepted by most people of of interest and understanding as being just about like a fingerprint. You no longer have the challenges to the science now that you had back in 1995. So we were all unclear about how it would play or even if the jury would understand and they would have odds, one in five billion, that there'd be a, another match, or one in, you know, 200 trillion. The numbers were just uh, inconceivable. It boggled the mind. So we were most concerned about that. It's funny, because Barry Sheck, Peter Newfield, and a, and a lawyer from Sacramento, great guy, Bob Blazer, were the DNA experts, and Bill Thompson from Orange County. And I was the focus group person mm-hmm. because I didn't know this, nor did the jurors. So Barry would use me for DNA. I'd be in the back row. The DNA guys in the front row, Johnny and Shapiro on the front row. But me and Bailey or Sean or, or, or Kardashian mm-hmm. were in the back row right inside the well, right next to the computer things. And I was supposed to be the focus group to see if I understood And I remember there was the DNA scientist from the LAPD crime lab. And she was talking, and Barry was examining her. And they were going on for 20 minutes. That testimony lasted for days. It was very dry, very scientific, very difficult to comprehend. And I remember a break with uh, the trial, and Barry turned around and said, Hey, Carl, did you get that? And I said, Barry, I didn't understand what the F you and she were talking about. It was like there was a private conversation. And we knew, though, that if I didn't get it, Mm -hmm. the jury wasn't going to get it either. But that was certainly something we were most concerned about throughout the trial.
1: Well, it was a fascinating trial that captivated the nation at the time and still on its 20th anniversary coming up, we are still talking about the O.J. Simpson case. So I'm sure our viewers and listeners at home will want to ask you questions and pick your brain. So uh, if you could give them your contact information, we'd like to share our Twitter handles, have our viewers and listeners reach out to us.
2: Certainly. My Twitter handle is c e d e s q. And my email address is Carl, C A R L, at Douglas Hicks Law.com. That's D O U G L A S H I C K S L A W.com. And please, Follow me on Twitter. I need some more followers.
1: (laughs) Well, Carl, I'm sure from this fascinating interview today, you will get a lot more followers. Follow Carl on Twitter. Reach out to me on Twitter, at Mari Fagel. I'm at Rawa, R-A-H-W-A. And as always, thank you so much for joining us on Justice is Served. We will be back here same time, same place next week. And have a good weekend.